Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Palace Coup Edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell. It's March 20th, 2014, and in the newsroom studio with me today are provincial affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And legislature columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. Premier Allison Redford. Alberta's first female premier resigned Wednesday night in a statement broadcast live by news outlets across the province. It was sudden, it was dramatic, and it was something that I admit even two weeks ago I never imagined she would do. Paula and Miriam, you were both there for her resignation speech. Can you tell us how Wednesday unfolded? Sure. Uh, so it began uh, with a speech at the uh, Alberta Association of Municipal Districts and Counties. It was uh a safe speech is, I think, what I called it in the story that I wrote. It, you know, talked about agriculture and, and flood mitigation. And, and the response she got was sort of lukewarm, sort of half-hearted. She, in a departure from tradition, didn't take questions. And uh, and then the day continued with yet another Tory MLA adding his name to sort of the growing chorus of discontented MLAs who had concerns over her leadership. And that was George Rogers. And... Uh, it was uh, by around five o'clock that we heard that she was going to be making the important announcement. And uh, by now, we all know what that important announcement was. So at six o'clock, Paula, what happened? Premier Redford came down the very majestic marble staircase into the legislature rotunda, flanked by Deputy Premier Dave Hancock, as he was then. Uh, and she started off her speech in a very upbeat, rah-rah kind of tone, almost making us wonder for a moment if she might not be calling a snap election instead of resigning because it was sort of a rehearsal of all the great things that had happened under her leadership, as she described it. And then her voice cracked. She talked about the toll this had taken on her husband and her daughter, and she said she was going to be resigning effective Sunday evening uh, to put an end to the caucus and the party in fighting. Then there was this very awkward moment when people in the rotunda didn't quite know how to react. The rotunda, as the name implies, is round. And so there's a, you know, a giant fountain surrounded by flowers, which was then surrounded by people. There were people up in the balconies. There was this, this kind of awkward moment in which one of Redford's backers started a chant of Allison, Allison, except that nobody else joined in. And then there was a little bit of awkward clapping. And I, I thought... It was a moment that really crystallized because here was a a room full, packed to the rafters of people who should have been her loyalists, who should have been the people clapping for the premier, who six months ago would have been the people clapping for the premier. And instead, there was this kind of awkward, half-hearted clapping as she left the room. Graham, when we recorded last week, I asked you if Alison Redford would still be premier when we sat down to tape this podcast. You said yes, you thought she would be. What changed? Well, you know, she still is. Yes, yeah, well, yes. Graham and I are standing by that. <laughs> yes. She'll still here until can Sunday. I, can I say, hold on. On a technicality. Wait, wait, wait. Let me ask me a question. And I said then, she'll be premier the following week. Beyond that, I couldn't guarantee anything. And she is premier today, and she'll be gone by Sunday. So I said, give her a week. And beyond that, so okay, fine. You want to say it's less than a day. But I said beyond a week, I couldn't say what's going to happen to her. It was, the things were that bad. Um, what's actually changed in the last week that made things even worse for her? Um, a poll came out this week uh, showing that uh, how unpopular they were. Um, the Tories are actually falling even further. She was dragging the, the Tories down. These polls, are what we're seeing now in these polls, it's really important. There's a shift happening in Alberta. Before we saw the Wild Rose more or less rock steady at a certain amount of support, the Tories go up and down. 
we're seeing now people are actually shifting now to the wild rose. That wasn't happening before. That's got the government terrified. It's one thing to have people sit on their hands and they don't like the, the Tories. They're not going to vote wild rose. Now they're saying, what the heck, we're going to vote wild rose. That's got the, the, the party in a panic and the government in a panic, caucus in a panic. Also, <clears throat> what happened this week is based on uh, these polls dropping the premier, uh, yesterday there was some meetings going on both in Calgary and Edmonton with local association presidents. There was talk of them passing motions of, of non-confidence and the premier writing letters asking for her to, to step down. That would have been a major embarrassment for her. Third of all, the MLAs are actually heading off on a two-week constituency break now. And they'd be going home to get an earful from uh, their constituents about how unpopular Redford is. We had heard about potentially 20 of them um, or so crossing over to Citizen Independence. Two have actually left already. There could be a lot more coming. And the sense was after they're back from their constituency break, we start seeing a lot more of them actually talking about leaving or actually leaving. That could have brought the government into crisis, potentially a minority government. So all that's playing at this one time. What's actually playing into that? is the party and the caucus are afraid if they don't get rid of, or didn't get rid of uh, Redford now and waited too long, they couldn't actually rebuild the party under a new leader to win the next election. They thought if things were left too too late, they'd be in major trouble next election. I think there are two other factors. Graham alluded to the fact that another MLA had crossed the floor. Last week we talked about Len Weber, and I had expressed some cynicism that Mr. Weber's floor crossing might have been self-interested. But at the beginning of this week, what really started, I think, an avalanche rolling was that uh, a respected Calgary MLA, Donna Kennedy Glanz, who's a social liberal in the party, respected strong woman who was in cabinet elected to cross the floor without attacking the premier, without making the kind of petty comments that Len Weber did about her not being nice. Instead, Kennedy Glanz talked about the party losing its ethical compass and talked about uh, financial policy issues and made it clear that her floor crossing wasn't about Redford's personality. And so I think that did a lot more damage. The other thing was that I think this week there was an increased level of toxicity in the social media conversation about Alison Redford. It was extraordinarily personal, it was extraordinarily malicious, and it was aimed at attacking her personally as a mother and as a wife. And I think that, you know, if it would have taken a very strong person indeed to be able to go home and look at your family and put them through that for another week. What was the reaction from cabinet members and MLAs within the party, both those who had supported the premier and those who had complained about their leadership last night. What were they saying when she finally did what so many of them had been urging her apparently to do? Um, well, I think everyone was very careful not to uh, not to make any really strong comments about her leadership, you know, in the wake of her resignation, which, uh, for example, Donna Kennedy Glanz, uh, she seemed very somber, actually, when I talked to her yesterday after the resignation. Um, she She kept telling me that she was, she was very sad um, and she described it as our party still uh, clearly has an allegiance there and interestingly today I asked her if she would consider a run at the leadership she's not ruling it out uh, and, and I think a lot of others aren't ruling it out either a lot of them have talked about the fact that it's too early to make a decision now but they are heading into this constituency break so I suspect that when we come back in two weeks we're going to be hearing about a lot of uh, cabinet ministers and who knows maybe even an independent MLA who will be tossing their names into the ring. Those people who are disgruntled but still within the party though are they talking anymore about still deciding whether they should stay or go? Two, two of the biggest examples were Matt Jenneru and Steve Young, both uh, first-term Edmonton MLAs who 
who were sort of uh, the loudest voices of discontent who had remained within caucus but were still uh, voicing their concerns over over expenses, over her uh, leadership style, they said. Neither one of them said anything uh, firm in terms of whether they would be remaining within caucus. They both still uh, said that they were going to be returning to their constituencies, hearing from the people who had elected them before they make their decision. Um, So that remains to be seen. But Dave Hancock today said that they're still free to speak their minds and that there won't be any discipline uh, against them. So uh, presumably they're, they're going to go ahead and, and hear exactly what their constituents have to say. I can't imagine anybody leading no. the caucus now. Like the, the, main, the main problem they had was Redford, and they're not going to leave now that she's left. No, because they, what, as Graham has previously alluded to, what they're interested in is power. And as long as they perceive that the party still has a chance at resurrection and they have a chance to keep their seats, they're going to stay where they are. The interesting thing is that the caucus did decide today, we sort of alluded to this but haven't said it straight out, that Dave Hancock is now, I guess... I guess he's technically the premier, but the interim premier of the province, uh, which is ironic because it's a job he wanted for a long time. He ran against Stelmack for the leadership uh, two premiers ago, uh, and and now he's premier. But he was also one of Alison Redford's most loyal champions, was infuriated in the House at some of the criticism she received. So I don't know how kindly Hancock, as the former House leader, is going to look upon some of these people. I mean, Steve Young, frankly, is not what you'd call a tremendous asset to the party at this point. So they may not want to leave. How excited Hancock will be to have them stay is a somewhat different question. Remember, he's the guy who called Len Weber a sad man. I don't know how quickly he's going to be op- offering Weber his seat back. Well, Weber doesn't really want to come no. back. He's he's moving to, to federal politics. No, right now, um, Hancock wants to make sure it's a one big happy family, keep them all happy. Um, he's happy to have them all there, and he doesn't want anybody defecting <laughs> leaving under his interim premiership. So I think that um, I know that he's probably the, the, the logical choice. It's a good choice. Uh, he's a very safe choice. This is a guy who is known as Mr. Moderate, Mr. Boring in many ways. Many of the things that actually doomed his leadership bid in 2006 serve him well as the interim leader now because he's very moderate, he's very thoughtful, he'll do nothing to rock the boat. Uh, They want to be seen right now as competent, moderate, and moving forward very gently. They've got the perfect guy right now to do that for them because he'll, he'll do nothing to make things worse for the party. We've talked a lot in our 30 episodes of the press gallery about Premier Allison Redford and her decisions. How do you all feel about her decision to actually resign? I I admit I'm still completely blown away by it. I never imagined it. Well, consider it was exactly one week to the day that she announced uh, in a very, again, sudden news conference that she was going to be repaying the cost of the $45,000 South Africa trip. Uh, And a lot of people criticized that move as too little too late. And that may have proven to be true. Of course, there were there was also the additional uh, Tories who, a, were speaking out and b had had crossed the floor. But uh, that timing to me really uh, really was interesting because uh, it was, you know, seven days almost down to the hour between her repaying that money and and resigning in front of everybody in in the rotunda. If you had been advising her, would you have been telling her to go? I I. I, I I think she had no choice but to. Things moved so quickly in the last week. The pressure was on. As we talked about earlier on, at the polls, the caucus moving against her own party 
if moving against her. Yeah. Like and the and pressure and was and it makes it impossible. And, and don't say her own party as though it's a shocking surprise because <laughs> it was her own party that moved against her. I mean, and the attacks from within her own party were far more vicious than anything coming from the Wild Rose, the Liberal, or the NDP. But I think there was also a very telling personal moment for Alison Redford this week by the most ghastly of coincidences. Her daughter Sarah's class was on a field trip to Ledge School this week. So Sarah's 12 years old, so the whole class was up from Calgary. Uh, Probably they couldn't have canceled the field trip. So Sarah is up in the gallery with her classmates as people are about to ask Redford, you know, questions about whether she should be resigning in question period. And Redford introduced her her daughter's class to the legislature, as is common practice when you have visitors in the gallery. She introduced her daughter, Sarah, and there was this instant firestorm of outrage on Twitter from people condemning her for using her daughter as a human shield and, you know, lambasting her for being a terrible mother, you know, all kinds of, you know, extraordinarily nasty personal commentary. Now, I don't imagine that Alison Redford spends a lot of time reading her reviews on Twitter, but, you know, I, I can't imagine as a leader and a mother, it was just like watching a car wreck. Uh, you know, so I think that a lot of what drove her, I mean, she's got a tremendous ego. She's got tremendous pride. A week ago, I said I never thought she would step down. I think it just became not a question of politics anymore, but a question of of how she was going to go home and face her family. So who on earth would want this job as Alberta Premier? Because we know that you get paid more as a health executive, for heaven's sake. <laughs> your every travel expense will be scrutinized. If you're not flying economy, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I certainly would not want to play one of those trust games where you stand on your desk and like fall back and let caucus catch you with anybody in the Progressive <laughs> Conservative Party right now. Because, you know, you know me. My I like to know that people have my back. And I mean, there's the obvious. Obviously, Daniel Smith, Brian Mason, Raj Sherman would all love to be premier. They don't think that's an option for them right now. So who would want this job? We're going to find out pretty soon from the, the PC party leadership race. That's going to be telling as well. If we get a lot of people running who are big names, it shows it's still, this is a big, big um, bobble in and uh, Alberta politics. If we see a shorter list and less, fewer big names, that's going to show that uh, even people within the party think they've got, they're, in, they're in real trouble. But still, it's look, this is the fastest growing problem. It's a lot of money here. Uh, there's no real debt or deficit. Uh, we can argue about that. Compared to other provinces, we're doing really well here. It, it's, it's a great job to have. Yeah, but politics is politics. Any premier, anywhere, prime minister, president, you name it, is under pressure all the time. And I think uh, here, this is still a, a great job to have. And you'll be seeing politicians fight tooth and nail for this job. It's interesting. Some of the names that are already coming up um, on Facebook last night, somebody's already started a draft. Stephen Mandel, the former mayor of Edmonton for premier. There's a Mike Lake for premier uh, Twitter account, Mike Lake being a, a Tory MP. I've seen all kinds of names on social media today. Brent Rathgaber, Jason Kenney. <laughs> uh, there's a draft Nahid Nenshi movement, right. you know, which... Nahid Nenshi, I think, has now given four interviews expressing his lack of interest in becoming the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. Uh, so there's, there's, I think, a lot of, you know, Jim Dinning's name has come up. People are going to sort of going back to the archives for people who've been out of politics for years. Jim Prentice. There's a long list of hoped-for heroes and white knights within caucus. Uh, there are a lot of people who are very ambitious. There are, you know, people like Jonathan Dennis who were interested last time, Doug Horner, Fred Horn. 
It's going to be really interesting to see, though, as Graham says, who's kicking tires and who's in it seriously. Miriam, what are you hearing? Which of the uh, MLAs and cabinet ministers have said definitely no and which have said, oh, no, it's too soon to talk about that? Just about everyone we've asked has said, oh, no, it's too soon to talk about that, um, which is sort of to be expected, of course. Doug Griffiths uh, did pretty strongly say he wasn't going to be running. So I thought that was interesting because obviously that was a name that people had been uh, throwing around. But ministers like McQueen, Diana McQueen, Environment Minister, uh, Energy Minister, sorry, um, Doug Horner, uh, Thomas Lukasik, Rick McIver, um, Jonathan Dennis, like Graham mentioned, all of these people we're very careful not to rule it out. And we're very careful to say that now is not the time. Uh, but I suspect in a few weeks, as I said, after the constituency break, uh, we'll be we'll be hearing from a lot more of them. It, the question is going to be, too, about raising money. The Conservative Party coffers are lower than they've probably been in 45 years. Uh, to run a leadership campaign and another election shortly thereafter is going to be an expensive proposition. Whoever is running for the leadership is going to have to prove not only that they can fundraise for themselves and their campaign, but that they can fundraise for the party. So that's really going to be telling is who opens the checkbooks. Well, and interestingly, too, I noticed today that the PC president, Jim McCormick, in his uh, statement um, welcoming and congratulating Dave Hancock as the new premier, uh, or I guess interim premier in the interim, also included a, a plug for fundraising and asked people to sign on to the Legacy Fund. Yes, and I noticed that on their Facebook post of that same message, the donate now or yeah. read more and donate now were right uh, like right there very prominently. That's right. And there were two different statements that that uh, he'd provided on, on Hancock becoming the interim premier. One of them was uh, very simple. Congratulations. He's been a party stalwart. He'll be, he'll be a great leader um, in the interim. But then the second one that was on the actual uh, Progressive Conservative Party website included a, a plug, you know, for the for the legacy fund and and uh, and a message that said, you know, it's only $10 a month and we need your contribution and your dedication. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And you, you can buy a membership for your child for Christmas or a birthday. You can, you know, 14 and up are allowed to vote. I have a silly question. If you're the interim premier, does your picture go up on the rotunda wall after for some reason that was the very first thing I thought wondered when I found out that uh, Minister Hancock was going to be the interim I've premier. I've given no thought to that whatsoever. I don't know. You think that really he shouldn't be. He wasn't elected to the job. Well, but again, but having said that's that, that's not how a Westminster democracy. He is, democracy. He is getting sworn in on Sunday. It's, it's like, a bit like uh, Kim Campbell, I suppose, right? Um, becomes prime minister, yep. and she was prime minister. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, technically, he probably is allowed to have his picture taken or put up there, painting up there. But I think that really, you know, <laughs> I've also begin beginning to wonder that they're not going to have enough wall space because they're going through premiers at a disturbingly rapid pace <laughs> compared it's, it's, it's to Alberta to history. The legislature. Well, you know, more it, space. it's a really interesting point. I mean, there is this weird way in which, unlike any other Westminster parliamentary democracy, this government is controlled by the party. The party goes through these leaders at, at a ridiculous clip, and the party is never really very happy. The party didn't want Ralph Klein as premier. They wanted Nancy Budkowski. The party didn't want Ed Stelmack as premier. They wanted Jim Dinning. The party didn't want Alison Redford as premier. They wanted Gary Marr. The party has not been very good at getting what it wants, and it's been very effective at getting rid of the people it didn't want. Yeah, and, and on that note, that technically um, premiers and prime ministers actually are chosen traditionally by their own caucus. By the caucus, not by the party. So, like, yes, you could say then, therefore, um, Hancock is within his rights to have his picture hung up on that the wall because the, he this is following tradition that the caucus 
picked somebody among themselves to become the the prime minister or the premier of Alberta. So yes, he should be technically yes. Put his, put his uh, hang his picture up there. I'm and sure that's not his number one concern. I'll, I'll <laughs> I know, and you raised it. And I thought I've never even thought about that. But um, he's, yeah, he's the premier. He is. He's the interim premier, and he'll he's be premier. sworn in on Sunday. Not that we expect much to be. Well, it's. Well, I'm not really. Sure. We haven't really nailed down the details of that yet. But it will be Sunday. I'm told at 6:30 uh, in the lieutenant governor's office at the legislature. I believe. How will this leadership race be different from previous leadership races? Do we know yet? You mean that uh, technically it's going to be different in the sense of set it up differently. Um, in the previous leadership races, they had a runoff. So you actually have at the first convention, people uh, uh, vote for them. If nobody has a clear majority, then they go to a second ballot a week or two later, um, two weeks later last time, where the top three people are on the, on the final ballot. It's a preferential ballot. And this is, this is how they managed to get people like Stelmack, who won, even though he was in third place. How uh, Redford won last time, even though she was in second because the third place person, Doug Horner, threw his support behind her. Now what they've done, they know this is a problem. They're getting people who are not particularly popular in the party or in the public who are becoming premier. Well, they're not popular with the party. <laughs> they're obviously popular enough with the public because they sold the membership. Yeah, but, but they, they become pretty unpopular after people get, get a chance to actually see them in action. So having said that, what they've done this time around is that they're changing it so that the top two go. To, if there's nobody wins the first ballot with a clear majority, then they go to a runoff with the top two, not the top three. So it's clear there's two people to choose from. There's no maneuvering with a, a preferential ballot. Speaking of maneuvering, how have the opposition parties changed how they're maneuvering in the legislature? I know it's only been 24 hours, less than 24 hours. But has their tone and language changed to adapt to the new reality that Premier Allison Redford isn't going to be there to kick around as Premier anymore? Well, they're, they contend that the problem never was just with the Premier. I swear that's not what I heard them say. But anyhow. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I think you might be right. But uh, the, the voices were pretty uh, uniform yesterday from the opposition leaders. They all insisted that... The problem never has been with the premier's office. The problem never has been with the person who occupies that office. The problem has been with the party. The problem has been with the culture of entitlement, that that sort of thing. Um, you know, and it doesn't help that former Tory, now independent Donna Kennedy Glantz, cited exactly those things when she did cross the floor. Uh, and she and she did repeat those concerns yesterday when I did talk to her, despite her talking about how sad she was for, for the party and for how things had ended up. Um, yeah. What Kennedy Glenn said to me is that she's looking to work with people who are fiscal conservatives and social progressives, and she said, I don't care what party they're in, which I thought was very telling. Well, in the meantime, does any business of government actually get done now? Are they... Well, that's a very good question. I mean, there's a budget that hasn't been passed. There's a, you know, there's a major policy agenda out of that throne speech. No, and they'll pass the budget. They'll... they'll this Will they? That you think they they believe in that budget enough, oh yeah. even though it was Premier Allison Redford's budget? They think this budget is, is relatively good. Either it's benign, meaning that, that no real pushback, or it's positive. And they really do believe that. Um, so they think that, in fact, people who are thinking of leaving the caucus are saying, you know, we like quite like the budget. Steve mm-hmm. Young said that Matt as well. Matt Jenner said the same thing yeah, to me. They yeah. quite like it. So Donna Kennedy Glenn's not so much. Yeah, but, but I think that they're thinking it, that's not really an issue. I think that they're going to pass the budget. Well, what else are they going to do? Not Not pass the budget? I what? mean, that, that triggers an election. Well, exactly. Hancock will be the... The government falls at that point if you, if you vote against the budget. And Hancock will be the, the premier uh, throughout that period, right, throughout the spring session. So 
um, he indicated pretty strongly today that that's you know one of the top goals is to get the budget passed. But this is a government operating on muscle memory. There's going to be nothing a chicken with its head cut off. They're going to do things. They'll keep moving. They'll cut checks and they'll keep on this building Alberta plan and they'll hopefully start building schools later. We'll see when. But they'll keep on doing things. But there'll be nothing, there's no new change in direction. There'll be nothing really major done in terms of innovation because they're going to have to wait and see who the next Premier is. We could probably talk about Premier Allison Redford's resignation and what's happened for hours. We won't subject our listeners to that. We'll, we'll wrap it up for there give it another week to settle but in the meantime we'll give you some good stuff to think about so this of course is our advice for political junkies about something they might be interested in reading watching or listening to in case you haven't had your fill let's start with another listener suggestion which came in last night from stanford blade he noted quite rightly that the last 24 hours have given us enough material for a full year of podcasts Mm -hmm. but knowing that we're drowning in provincial politics he kindly offered something a bit different and i appreciate this suggestion and not just because it's from my old alma mater. So here's what Stanford said. I nominate a panel discussion done at Columbia School of Journalism on journalism after Snowden. It includes a dramatic explanation of how the New York Times helped verify and break the Snowden story. And then the panel explores how journalism and governments need to adapt in the face of such stories. His own experience listening to this remarkable discussion, he says, on NPR, was while he was sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. We will post that link, but if you want to try searching yourself, go just go look up Columbia Journalism School and Journalism After Snowden. Thanks for that suggestion, Stanford. Miriam, got a good stuff for us? I have to confess that I do not have a good stuff because I've been very busy for the last week and a half. Uh, so my good stuff is for all of our listeners to pick up all of the newspapers in the province today and just read them because they are full of lots of great context all the news that you need and and you know things that we need to think about for going forward like who are some potential leadership race contenders so that's what I got for you I have a personal one I haven't had one for a couple weeks because our listener ones have been so good but for those who need a laugh after a tough week this really has been hard to watch from afar I want to recommend an episode of the debaters which is hosted by Steve Patterson on CBC specifically I think you should check out the episode where two comedians debate Senate reform. <laughs> now, how could that... That is, that is awesome. I, I heard that one. How it could, is awesome. How could that be funny? But there is a joke about Committee of the Whole, which, while a bit rude, had me laughing my head off. My children tried to get me to explain the joke, and I refused to explain why it was so darn funny. Mm-hmm. So search the debaters, CBC, and Senate reform, but I will post the links. Paula? I have something from much further afield. Uh, it's a really dark and in some ways funny piece from the Atlantic about the situation in Crimea and the Ukraine uh, by Matt Ford, who looks at the irony of the fact that while people who are very upset about Russia's annexation of the Ukraine are comparing it to uh, Hitler's annexation of the Sudetenland and, uh, you know, comparing Western response to the peace in our time, you know, infamous speech by Neville Chamberlain, he points out that within Russia, the Russians are at the same time comparing the the interim government in Ukraine to the Nazis. And he sort of has some dark but pointed fun with the fact that both sides are claiming to be defending the other one from somebody who's like Hitler. And it, the, this piece, which, as I say, is both serious and funny, rejoices in the title, Good News from Ukraine, Everyone Still Hates Hitler. 
Sounds good. Past episodes of the Press Gallery are on edmontonjournal.com's opinion page, SoundCloud, and iTunes. You may want to hear our analysis of how we got to the point that we're at this week from the past. So you can see, see more where Graham was right and wrong. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> more right than wrong, I hope. It's been suggested to me that we find a more Android-friendly posting method, and I am working on that. Um, but in the meanwhile, the Press Gallery also has a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thepressgallery, where listeners such as Stan have been posting good stuff suggestions. Please keep it up. Heaven knows what next week will bring, but we'll be back to talk about it in the Press Gallery. <laughs> <laughs>